As we prepare to hear the message, let's say together a prayer as we read from the word. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Genesis 9, 8-17 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. This morning, as we prepare to hear the Word of God on this first Sunday of Lent, I'm going to invite you just to bow your heads with me in prayer as we seek to do two things, um, to open our own hearts and minds to the hearing of God's Word. Without the help of the Spirit, it's just all words, isn't it? Without the movement of God's Spirit within our lives and through our lives, the Word does not have its intended purpose. I'm aware this morning of how easy it is for us to be distracted. I am easily distracted. Ask my wife uh, when she talks to me. I can easily just pay attention to something else. Over the years, I've gotten better at listening to my wife. There's a, there's a whole sermon there. But it is also the truth that we have to become more acquainted with how to listen to the voice of God. If there is a season that postures us to listen well, it is this season as we make our way through the wilderness to the cross. And what may at first appear to be something that most pastors would say to you, listen to the Word, is such an important invitation. The Word of God gives us much more than we often think it offers. And in the wonderful way in which the Holy Spirit works through the reflections on His Word that I will present to you, God is able to speak to individual hearts and lives. He's able to speak to the church, and He's able to lead us. I pray that you at home and those gathered here this morning as the worship team and the tech crew would be open to hearing from the Lord today. For what we all need, for what we all need, is not good advice. What we all need is, is not just another great idea or more information from Scripture. What we need is to hear the voice of God for such a time as this. 
Will you join me now in prayer? Father, what is proclaimed here week after week is that in you we have hope. And so this morning as I stand behind a pulpit, a podium, something that holds my notes, I I am reminded of how that you have always used ordinary people called by you to proclaim who you are in this world. In fact, your calling doesn't stop with pastors or missionaries or paid professional clergy or theologians or Bible scholars. Your calling is for us all. You have from the outset invited us to know you and to be known by you. You have from the outset decided that your creation would glorify you through being in a relationship with you. And so this morning, we want to anchor ourselves in this great story in a way that helps us to live more faithfully. I pray that you would grant me the wisdom, the discernment to say that which I ought and to not say anything more or less. And I pray that you would make my heart, as I invite all of us to make our hearts receptive to your word today. Father, may we be arrested. May we be captivated. May we hear the truth from your word that has a bearing not only on our understanding, but on our lives. We are a people in need of salvation. We are a people in need of a God who saves, sometimes from ourselves, sometimes from the circumstances in our life. But of this we are assured that the God as revealed through Scripture is the God that ultimately desires to restore and to renew everything about us and everything in our world. May we grasp the vision and the hope and the truth that comes from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Never again powerful words. Never again appears in this text, and it is spoken by God to Noah after a cataclysmic flood that basically destroys most of creation with the exception of Noah and his family and the animals assembled on the ark. This is a very difficult text. In fact, one biblical scholar says it this way. He says, the opening chapters of Genesis is probably some of the most well-known texts that we have in Scripture. We, We have stories of Cain and Abel, and we have the story of the flood. And if you grew up in the church, you probably have seen the stories represented in Sunday school lessons over the time. But these Bible scholars also alert us that it's probably one of the most problematic Scriptures to interpret well. And the story of Noah itself, the story of a flood, is a serious story beyond the wonderful, cute, fuzzy depictions of animals walking up into an ark two by two is the seriousness and the gravity of sin and the judgment of God. There is no denying that when we read this text, it is a hard text to listen to through a Western contemporary lens and not ask questions about the character of God, not ask questions about what is God really up to in this text. But before we jump into the text, let's begin in the beginning. Genesis, after all, is a book of beginnings. The opening chapters of Genesis teaches us of a creator God who has called the world into being to be his faithful covenant partner. Let me say it differently. 
The world that God creates, He creates in such a way that all of creation would be in a dynamic relationship with Him that ultimately reveals who He is in all of creation. Stated differently, we as Christians begin our understanding of the heart of God in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 before we get to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And in the beginning, we see this repeatedly said in the opening chapters of, the God, of, of, of Genesis that God created and it was good. It was good. What God has made is good. Not just humankind, but all of life. And that all, everything, as the psalmist says, everything that has breath is called into praise of the great creator. That in fact, God creates in such a way that our lives and everything that has breath on this earth would ultimately bring glory to him. His plan is good. His plan is shalom. From the beginning, wholeness, which is defined as unity, as harmony, as beauty, as goodness. Our starting point is not the fall. That will come. But our starting point is a God who in the beginning creates and at the end in Revelation chapter 21 comes to renew creation. I want you to just rest with me for a second. So many of us understand the Christian faith in ways that are probably contrary to the great saving work of God. God created and what he made is good and he remains committed to the goodness of his creation. He remains committed to the plan of his creation. Put it differently, maybe it appeals to us more. God remains committed to us. Uh, not only do we see in the opening of Genesis that God is the one who creates, but God places us in a position of privilege as kind of, you know, I hate to use this word because we, we often take these words and abuse them. Uh, but we have been given this responsibility. Perhaps we would say we are the pinnacle creation in creation, but we are still creation, not creator. God gives us responsibility to exercise dominion over creation. Uh, we are to do so in a way that reflects how God cares for us. And there's two words that is used in the opening chapters to define what this care looks like. It is that we would serve creation. My, 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 my sermon is not going to go down this road, and Mo did a wonderful job. Tomorrow's lesson with a beautiful art piece in the devotional speaks to this. But we as human beings have been given charge to care for this creation. For too long, we have consumed and abused this world as if it would dissolve in snow. And I'm quoting a hymn that we should not sing the refrain to. If God is committed to creation and recreation, he promises that he will do what he promised to do and that he will not abandon that which he has made. And he invites us to be good stewards of this world, to be participants to the care of this world. Not only are we to serve creation, but we are to keep it safe, protecting it, watching over it, caring for it. Put differently, ruling the earth is for creation's benefit and not just for our own consumption. So that, coming back to the psalmist, who informs how we are to live our lives so that everything that has breath 
may glorify the Lord. So Genesis begins good. It's a story about a good creator that creates a good creation. It is about a God who entrusts to humankind the responsibility to care for this creation so that this creation may bring glory to him. We could probably pause there and ask ourselves the ways in which Lent invites us to participate in creation care. We could probably, I should probably, do a series on how that how we live our lives day to day, including the choices we make, reflect our belief in the God who cares about this world or not. Uh, but we must go on. It's soon, in chapter 3, things start falling apart. <laughs> in fact, the word the fall would give us uh, uh, an insight into what is happening. In just a few chapters, things that were good seems to have lost its goodness. The condition of man, according to Genesis 6, listen to this is that every inclination of the thoughts of human hearts was consistently evil. And that God's heart was grieved by the state of his creation. I don't know what our perceptions of God is, but there is a perspective of God that is revealed to us in Genesis that we must pay attention to. That God's heart, can I put it differently, is broken by the state of a world that is bent not on shalom, but bent away from it. That whatever we understand about Noah, whatever we will now appropriate about what happens in the flood, must be rooted in, a, in, 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 this, in this understanding that God's heart is broken for a world that breaks what he has made. For a world that refuses to see the good that God has invested, imbued in it. Now, some of us have grown up with a perspective of God, and we've heard me, and I've quoted this before, yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. And while we believe that God remains faithful, it's certainly in Noah, in this particular passage of Scripture and in the Genesis account, does not give us this comfort to think that because, you know, God acted a certain way, he will always act the same way. There is a sense in which to think of God purely as doing what we think he ought to do robs us of the purpose of seeing who he is. This God of creation is after all God. He has the right to choose his ways. He has the right to change his course. This might perhaps startle some of us who find that it is easier to have a Christianity that is rooted in, and not so much that God is just consistent, but if God is consistent, then at least I know what I should or should not do. And yet the Bible presents to us, and, and, and it does this. I just want to be honest with you. The Bible is sometimes hard to understand. The God of Scripture is, is often a little bit bigger than our understanding. But here in the text, we see a God who is so distraught by what he has made that the Scripture says he's, he regrets it. He regrets it. I, I want to read this portion of Scripture that you can hear the regret in the heart of God. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. All the time. The Lord regretted 
that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. And then in verse 8, listen very carefully. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Listen, so here's the, here's, here's, here's the summation so far. God creates something that is good. That we would reflect who he is in this world, care for the world as he wants us to care for it. In fact, in creation, we are so much the image bearers of God that he instructs us to rest on the Sabbath as he rested when he created. Things are going well until sin enters in. And sin in Genesis is a, a turning away from the shalom to the ways that brings about destruction and brokenness. Another way sin is defined in Genesis, it is choosing the way of violence. Cain and Abel. Cain kills and buries. The descendant of Cain, Lamech, later on in Genesis here as well, uh, he, 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 he kills somebody who wounds him, and then he writes a song to celebrate it and sings it to his wives. If we don't understand that what is happening in Genesis is that there is a cascading of moving away from the hope and shalom of God, so much so that there is literally the appearance of no hope for God's plan to succeed. That every inclination, every heart is turned away but Noah. Uh, the, the text, I think, um, someone noted a few weeks ago that I need to take a breath a little bit when I preach. Let me just have a little water. There seems to be a very dim view of the heart of man in this text. And it makes it very hard for some of us to relate to I know because... Most of us will say, most people are good people, Stu. Come on, you know, like, are you, are you really going to suggest this? Perhaps it helps us to think of this a little bit more biblically than just niceness, or we're in Canada, so I'm going to say Canadian hospitality and politeness. The hearts that are turned away from God is, is, is better understood as hearts that cannot move beyond its self-interest cannot move beyond consuming and possessing. As hearts that cannot stop living just for the personal and not for the great plan of God. That the world seems to be bent that same way today. In fact, Jesus would say in the Gospels, both in Matthew and in Luke, you know, this world with the coming of the Son of Man is like as in the days of Noah. They were eating and drinking and marrying, and they were just living it up without any sense of who I am and what I have given them. <sighs> Into this darkness, this world gone wrong, we see a glimmer of grace and hope. In the precarious moment of impending doom, God sees Noah. <laughs> I'm so glad for Noah. <laughs> you know, I really am glad for Noah because, you know, 
there's a, a righteousness amidst all the violent chaos. There is a, a way that is still there amidst all that has gone wrong. I, I, I want to just pause for a moment. I know that most of you are probably not going to think this is a great big deal, but I got to tell you <laughs> that the world seems kind of like it needs a big bath again. You know, I, when our kids were, were younger and, and, and they would play outside, we'd love when they played outside. You know, when they get older, they don't want to play outside anymore. I think that's sad. But with playing outside in God's creation, you kind of get dirty, you get muddy, and bath time was a great time. You know, it was a time to get rid of all the dirt you picked up so that you can go to bed in your nice, clean PJs. We have a little video, and I'm going to embarrass her now, but we have a little video of, of, of Lauren and... and they were little. Lauren, I'm so sorry. She's operating the camera. They were little in the bathtub together, and, and, and she had a little rubber ducky, a little yellow rubber ducky. Luke was just a little chubby little baby. <laughs> and Lauren would lean in into the water onto the rubber ducky, and it would just, you know, kind of the air would be released into the water. And this sound made Luke giggle to the point where I think his mom had to hold him up because he would just fall into the water. We watch that video often to the embarrassment of both Lauren and Luke. But it does feel to me that if I look at the state of the world, that we may all feel the same way. Maybe the world needs a giant bath again. <laughs> a way of starting over, a way of cleaning up the mess. But I want to point out, and I think it's really important, that we understand that in the precarious moment in which God could have totally brought an uh, apocalyptic end to all things, He sees Noah, and in that seeing of Noah, grace steps in the midst of rebellion and darkness. Grace comes into the world at its most precarious moment of chaotic collapse. And we know the story. They uh, build the ark according to specifications. They enter the ark and they, uh, they are on the water for months, perhaps even longer than that. And they eventually would disembark. And the first thing, the first thing that Noah does, he takes some of the clean animals that has just been locked away on an ark to save them from drowning, and he makes a living sacrifice to God. And it says that the aroma from the sacrifices is so pleasing to God that God responds and says, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, nor will I ever again destroy everything, every creature as I have done. As long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What is going on here? What is going on in this text? Is God simply responding to a man who decided that he was going to offer sacrifice? So is God showing us a response that he makes that would bring hope not only to Noah and his family, but to all of creation? You see, Genesis 8, 20 through to 22, or 20, 22, is one of the most significant texts in the Old Testament because the God that is there, the God that wanted to start anew, start afresh, end it all, decides that he will never have that posture towards humanity again. 
and that Noah recognizes in that moment who God is and the one who has saved him leads him to offer up to God all that he had to offer to him. And in that very moment, there is a cataclysmic shift if you don't believe in God who is changing, I'm going to challenge that. But the God that we see in the beginning of the Noah narrative that is bent upon starting new has chosen not only to save, but to never again do what we see potentially done here. Simply put, God will not start over again, but remains now committed to His restoration of the world. Now, before we get, uh, oh, Stu, you're getting all soft, you know, we, we know that the Bible speaks about judgment. Did you notice that when I just read 8, 20 and 21, that it says that the hearts of humans were still bent on evil? You know what the flood did not do? It did not change <laughs> the hearts uh, of people. In fact, if you were to read the story on, you, you, right after the passage I'm just reading to you, uh, uh, the, the boys of, of, of Noah get into a real weird, strange thing with their father. This kind of continues on in some ways. Uh, it continues on, and you know whether the story of the Tower of Babel, have you ever thought about the Tower of Babel? And you kind of go, what on earth is going on here? I wish I could, I'm going to preach on the Tower of Babel because I've been learning so much about it recently. But I've got to say a couple of things to you about the Tower of Babel. You know what the Tower of Babel represents? It represents creation forgetting who their God is and what He wants them to do and live as. It represents people who decide that they would rather ascend to God without blessing and caring for the earth. It represents a people that have forgotten that they have been created so that God, they would reflect the very reality of God. If I was to say it, it's just, you know, kind of just blatantly, I would say it this way. The, 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 the Babel incident kind of resurfaces in history all the time when the people of God act as if the way to God comes without caring for the world in which they live. In fact, I'm giving away the Babel message. The unity of tongue is disrupted by God as they try to ascend to the heavens through the tower. But in the Acts of the Pentecost, God blesses the diversity of tongues so that the hope of God would be spread to every tribe and nation. Why? Because God remains created, creator, remains committed to His plan. The floodwaters had not changed the heart of man. And in fact, we can take from this text that that kind of judgment. I grew up in a church that consistently warned me about the implications of disobedience and sin. And rightly so. Sin does lead to death. Let's not, let's not make light what's going on here. I know that we may want to hear, you know, I can do my sin and just kind of rely on the, the grace of God. But if sin is just about me... That's one thing, but sin here is corporate. It affects everything. The decisions we make have a ripple effect. Some of you know this to be true. You've seen it play out in your own lives. You've seen that there's a lot more at stake, you know, in this individual culture that says to us, what I do is I, what I do, Stu. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's, it's my right to do what I want to do. And we don't care beyond ourselves. 
The God of creation cares for all of creation, and those who reflect his image in the world cares about more than themselves. Therefore, they care about their sin, not only for their own salvation and sanctification, but they care about it for the sake of the world that God has created. And so there's a sense in which we take this seriously, but we understand that the flood does not solve the bent issue towards self-centeredness. And if we read Genesis through, we see that this perpetuating evil goes at great cost to God who has decided that he will never again bring an end to the world the way that he threatened to do through the flood. And so what does God do? Are you still with me? Can I get an amen? Makes a lot of sense to me this morning. I don't know if it's translating. That not only does God commit to not starting new and commits to redeeming this world, this creation, including us, but God puts a symbol in the sky to remind himself of his commitment. I do a lot of weddings. Uh, COVID, uh, I did one wedding in COVID. It was really kind of, kind of cool, but weird. Um, as a part of wedding ceremonies, most of you know, at least in the West here, the tradition is that we would exchange a symbol of the covenant we make, right? The wedding band that I'm wearing and that some of you are wearing and some of you are about to wear, um, they they teach us something about commitment. Now, if, you, if, you, if you're struggling with, with, with this, this God who changes posture, and <laughs> I, I want you to understand that, that what God does here is, 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 it almost appears like he's vulnerable to show us his heart. And, and he says, I don't want to go back to wanting to wipe them, them all out. And so I'm going I'm to give myself a symbol that that, you know, if we could just play it out, that I'm going to look at so that I won't forget my commitment. Uh, there's several Bible scholars who, who make comments about the rainbow. Now, we render it in some of our translations as rainbow. Otherwise, it's rendered, I think in the original language, it's rendered as bow. And it kind of has this dual meaning. Uh, the bow uh, could refer to an archer's bow. An archer's bow. And in fact, you know, in some of the kind of mythological kind of uh, 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 ruminations on the gods, you know, the gods are often depicted as holding a bow <laughs> with an arrow in it. And some Bible scholars tell us that the symbol that God gives us is a bow in which the arrows have been loosed. They are no longer there. Put differently, it's a bow at rest that the symbol that God gives to himself is to say that I will not destroy what I have made even when I feel like it. I will not put an end to what I've created ever again. There is no arrow in the bow. I'm committed to renewing and restoring at great personal cost to me because violence perpetuates, things continue to multiply, and yet we see the symbol of the bow transfigured into the symbol of the cross. And there we see the image of Jesus as we move towards Resurrection Sunday that says to the world again at his 
cost to himself, God has decided not to bring an end, but to give himself completely so that we may have life. This is the treasure and the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It begs us today. It, it warns us today. That our sin has implications beyond ourselves, but that God is far more committed to his restorative plan than we are at times. And yet we are invited, my friends, to return to the God whose posture towards the world now is one of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Never again. Never again. God's plan will be fulfilled because God has postured his heart towards redemption. And this morning as I end, we are invited to respond to such grace. I think this morning, there's a few ways I want to invite you to think about praying Maybe some of us need to pray for wisdom so that we would be good carers of the creation God has given us. Maybe some of us need to consider our consumptive ways, our materialistic ways. Our ways that ultimately says this, all that matters is what I get. At whatever cost to those who I don't see, but we as Christians can't afford to live that way. We can't afford to be so self-centered, so self-serving. This kind of way ultimately costs somebody something somewhere. So how are we discerning as followers of Jesus? Perhaps some of us need to pray, Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we choose the ways of violence over peace. You can say, well, Stu, I'm not a violent person. You know, I, 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 I don't usually punch people unless I'm playing hockey. But the outcome of violence is a reflection upon, again, the self-centeredness of humanity. We tend to justify violence in the pursuit of things. Countries who justify it to secure their own economies. To subjugate people. We justify it in the face of even those who don't like us. We marginalize, we push away, we demonize, we criticize. You know, if there's a narrative, and I'm speaking now very, very intentionally to this particular season of life, that Christians have been telling it is this, that the way of cross and the way of peace no longer seems appealing to us. We would rather have power over people. We would rather have our way instead of God's way. God help us. 
Help us today to remember that the symbol that God gives Himself is a symbol that also invites us to remember His commitment to us as given through His Son, Jesus Christ. I want to close now, and I want to invite you to where you are, and as those who are gathered here today, would you take some moments to reflect upon the word that has been proclaimed. In what ways are our attitudes, our actions, our behaviors standing in contrast to the shalom and hope of God? What this morning do we have to confess from and of? What do we have to say to God about that which stands in the way of peace? That which stands in the way of peace in our life, that which stands in the way of peace in the life of our families, that which stands in the way of peace and wholeness. And by the way, peace is not simply the absence of things. Peace is the presence of God. Those who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord are those who are able to live at peace because He gives them His peace. What is there today that the peace of God needs to overcome in us, in our relationships? What is God inviting us to let go of? What is God inviting us to embrace and to believe? How is He challenging us to care for one another and to care for our world? Maybe there is someone here uh, listening today that needs a sign, a symbol, needs something to say. Uh, when I look to that, I know that God is still committed to me that He has not forget, forgotten me, that He has not moved on despite how and what I've done. Uh, Stu, I, I need to hear today that God is not done with me. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. The cross would say to us that He remembers us. He cannot forget. He will not forget but will we remember Him? Father God, I join Your people, both those watching and those present, and I pray together with them, forgive us of all the ways in which we fall short, whether by intention or by will. Forgive us, Lord, for all the things that we do that leads us away from your purpose and your plan for creation. Forgive us from the sin that so easily besets us and makes us look at others through less than God's gracious eyes. Forgive us for the ways in which we live self-centered lives, caring only for number one, no matter who it affects. Forgive us for the ways in which we consume without consideration, in which we do not pay attention to your plan and your purpose for all creation. We humbly confess to you. Rely upon your grace. Your word says those who confess their sins before you, you are faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse and to lead in the ways of righteousness. But as you take, Lord, the gracious posture towards us, raise up a people and a church who lives with the hope of Jesus Christ that we would become the symbols of the grace of God in our world, that people, when they look upon 
upon the church of God would see the commitment of a creator God who made that which is good for himself and is committed to redeeming, committed to restoring all that he has made. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And may you now guard our hearts and our minds so that that truth which we have received and we have said yes to may not dissipate in the moments that follows, but may in fact lead us in your ways. We pray, dear God, for transformation of hearts and minds and attitudes and lives. We pray for reconciliation for the renewing of relationships, for the mending of brokenness in our own spirits, in our minds, and in our families. I pray, Lord, that you would come by your Spirit and do a movement across the city by the power of your Spirit, bringing about your shalom and hope for all creation through your church. May we settle for nothing less. May we not be intimidated, but may we place our hope in God himself. Now would you receive these words of blessing. May the God who remembers his promises to us bless us so that we will not forget his grace. Go in the peace and the love and the power of the Spirit. Amen.